Well, good morning. Great to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And uh, as Josh just told you, we are preparing over this next month for the grand opening. I hope you'll be inviting people and uh, preparing uh, just your own hearts for that. And one of the ways that we want to do that is through an extended season of prayer. Here's why. Uh, We believe that if we get all the logistics ready and all of the volunteers ready and all of the plans ready uh, for this grand opening and for this next season of life and ministry in this space, if we get all of that stuff ready but we're not ready spiritually, it doesn't matter. Let me say that again. If we get all of the plans and all of the logistics and all of the systems ready but we're not ready spiritually, for what God wants to do in us as a church in this next season. If we're not ready spiritually, it doesn't matter. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time in the week leading up to the grand opening doing something we've never done before, and that's a week of 24-7 prayer. A week of 24-7 prayer. So at the end of the last service, the week before, uh, this will start where every hour on the hour we'll have a group of people that will be gathered here on campus. They'll pray all night into Monday, all night into Tuesday, and on and on and on until the very last prayer meeting will conclude before our 9 o'clock service on the day of our grand opening. And so I want to invite you and I want to challenge you to be part of this, to take an hour maybe to take three hours, maybe even to take five different hours over the course of that week and come here and pray. We'll have leaders who will be leading all of those. There will be kind of printed guides to help you go through it. Uh, It'll actually be pretty active. We'll be walking around the campus and praying for different things in different places because if if you're like me and if you're like a lot of people, you go, how am I going to pray for an hour and stay awake? Like that could be tricky. And so we're going to help you do that. And I know some of you, very few of you, are like super prayer warriors. And you're like, yes, finally, I'm going to get to live at the church and pray for a week. So we'd be happy for you to do that. Uh, But a lot of you are probably not in that place. Maybe some of you went through a men's fight club or a women's discipleship study this spring on prayer. And you're ready to kind of use those muscles a little bit. And so we'd love you to to just put it on your calendar uh, during that week, July 21st to 28th. There's information in your program if you want to sign up and let us know that you're going to commit to one of those hours. Here's why this is so important. In Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, it says this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in new buildings, some trust in printed invite cards. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. So we need to prepare our hearts for that. And so I hope you'll take the challenge and join us in that week leading up to the grand opening. All right, well, it's been the season of graduations and commencement speeches. And so, uh, you know, from time to time, you see these different lists of impactful graduation speeches. And I uh, saw one recently by uh, retired Admiral William McRaven. He gave the commencement speech about five years ago at the University of Texas, And uh, it's now been watched over 8 million times. It's become very popular. He actually turned it into a book. And here's a portion of what he says in that speech. He says, if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. By the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. 
Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. If by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made. That you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. The book that he turned from his speech is called Make Your Bed. Right? And, and he knows it's the little things that make a big difference. We know this. It's the little things in life that make a big difference. When you walk around this campus and you see the beauty architecturally of this space, it's the little things that make the difference. It's the little attention to detail. It's the little paying attention to certain materials and certain design. That's what makes a difference. It's the little things. I think about my childhood, and, and sometimes people will say, you know, what were some of the things that really impacted you as a kid? And I, and I don't remember very well a lot of the big trips or a lot of the big expensive moments. But you know what I do remember? I remember family dinner where our family would sit around a table and talk about our day and be there together day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. It's the little things that make a big difference. You can tell a lot about somebody by how they handle the little things. If you're interviewing someone for a job or you're recruiting people to join a venture that you're part of, pay attention to the little things and especially how they treat the people that feel like little people. How do they treat the barista? How do they treat the server? How do they treat the custodial staff? How do they treat the admin setting up the appointment? How do they handle the little things? Because if they won't treat the little people with respect, they won't treat the big people with respect either. It's the little things that make a big difference. And what we're going to talk about today is the little things. Uh, in fact, a little couple of things that are so little that we might just overlook them, and yet they're part of all of our lives. And if we'll pay attention to them, what we'll see today is that when it comes to following Jesus and making an impact in the world, if we pay attention to these little things, it'll make a huge difference. So that's where we're going to go. Let me just review where we've been in case you're just joining us or you've been out uh, for a couple weeks. Uh, we're looking at this book uh, called Philippians. It's written by the Apostle Paul. He had started a number of churches around the Mediterranean Rim, and one of them that he started was this church in Philippi. It was actually the first church plant that Paul started in Europe, Philippi's modern-day Greece. And so because it was that first church plant, he just has a lot of affection for them. You see it all throughout this letter, how much he loves them, how much he cares for them, how much he's connected to them. Paul is writing this letter from house arrest. He's been arrested for preaching the gospel, and he's awaiting a verdict. Either he'll be released and able to continue to do ministry, which he's hopeful maybe he'll be able to do, or he will be executed. Scholars often point to 2 Timothy as the letter that's Paul's last letter. It's his last words. It's his final words. But, but when he wrote Philippians, he didn't know. Maybe it was going to be his last words. And so what does he focus on in this, what might be his last letter, turned out not to be, but what does he focus on? He focuses on Jesus and on the message of Jesus. Look at what he says in chapter one, verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
He focuses on Jesus and he focuses on the gospel. He's saying, no matter what happens to me, whether I live or whether I die, here's what I want, Philippians. I want you to make an impact in the world with the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. This whole section that we're looking at today in chapter 2, it all began in chapter 1, verse 27. Look at 127 with me. He says there, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul wants the gospel to advance through the Philippians and the strength of the gospel advancing will depend on a surprisingly small thing. That's what we're going to look at today. Let's pray and ask God to help us and lead us. Father, we come before you aware of our need of you. God, that even with good reading skills and good interpretive habits. We can't really understand this passage in its fullness unless you come with your spirit. So come and speak to us. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Lead us into the grace and truth of Jesus, whose name we pray in. Amen. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of start big picture because that's kind of where Paul is beginning. And we're going to look at the big impact that can be made. And then we're going to slowly, over the course of this time together, we're going to narrow it in and see the surprisingly small thing that makes the big impact. But first, let's look at the impact that Paul wants to make. It's the same impact that we want to make. He's writing to this Philippian church saying, I want you to make an impact in the world with the gospel. And it's the same thing for us. Here's the first idea. We want to impact the world with the gospel. If you're a follower of Jesus, you want, like Paul does, to impact the world with the gospel. The Apostle Paul has been gripped by the gospel. This message that new life has begun for all who are united to Christ by faith. The gospel message that Paul had heard and that Paul preached was the idea that he could be forgiven of his sin, brought into relationship with God, and empowered for new life, not by good works, but rather by trusting in Jesus. We'll see next week when we look at Philippians 3 in the beginning of that, we'll look at Paul's resume. Paul had quite a resume. He was born on the right day, born of the right group. He kind of was the, the Jew's Jew, the Hebrew of Hebrews. He had all the pedigree, not just in his lineage and in his family, but also in his behavior. He was zealous, he was righteous, he was trying to keep the law, he was working, 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 trying to please God. And he writes in there that all of that stuff that I thought was a gain, I now consider it trash because it wore me out. I could never keep up, I could never do good enough. This is where some of you are. You have some standard you're trying to reach. Maybe it's a religious standard. You're working and you're studying and you're praying and you're doing all the things to try to make God happy. And it's not happening. 
Maybe it's a standard that came from your parents. It's not necessarily religious, but it's just kind of instilled in you, the morals of here's what it is to be a good person. And so you're working really hard to try to do that. Maybe it's just your own kind of self-improvement project where you go, you know what, for me to feel good about myself, I could need to get to here. And so you're working and you're working and you're striving and you're striving and you never quite feel like you get there. That's where Paul was. And then he's introduced to Jesus. And he finds in Jesus that his relationship with God does not depend on his works and his ability to do all the right things and climb the right ladders, but rather that Christ, in mercy and grace, has descended to him, has come to him and given him a righteousness that was not dependent on his works, but rather came by faith. This has gripped Paul, and it has transformed Paul's life. I can relate to this a little bit. I went to college at University of Illinois and played baseball there. And I remember my freshman year, I was coming off of a shoulder surgery. I'd, I'd torn my labrum. And the coach who'd recruited me was no longer there. And so I show up as a freshman and I'm injured and I'm rehabbing. And I don't have any advocates on the staff because none of them know me. They've not, none of them have seen me play, but they were obligated because I'd already signed. And I had to work and work and work to try to make the travel squad, and then to try to make the starting lineup. That freshman year, I just felt all this pressure that every at-bat and every game was going to dictate whether I was going to get another at-bat or another game. It was exhausting. And I, if I go four for four, it was like, yes, I'm conquering the world. If I went 0 for four, it was like, my life's over, I'll never play again. And I remember the difference between that freshman year and then my junior year. My junior year... My arm was healthy, and I was playing third base, and I was off to a decent start, and then kind of in that first third of the year, I hit a big slump. I was not playing well, not hitting well. Felt like I couldn't hit my way out of a wet paper bag. I remember the coach calling me into his office, and, and the, his, his name was Itch. That was the nickname he got when he was nine, and it stuck. He was 62, but he still went by Itch. And I remember he called me into his office, and I'm thinking, oh, no, this is not good because I've not been playing well. And uh, Itch, who had this kind of high squeaky voice, he, Itch is gonna, he's going to sit me down. He's going to go, all right, Luke, you're just not cutting it. We had baseball before you were here, and we'll have baseball when you leave. You're not that big a deal. So once you start playing good, then you'll get to play some more. But for now, you just take a seat on the bench. Keep it warm. <laughs> That's what I expected fully him to say. And so I sit down in the chair. Right, you didn't get called to his office very often. So he calls me in the office. And he said, Luke, I know it's been a rough stretch, but no matter what, you're my third baseman. And I walked out of that office like the weight of the world was off of my shoulders. Because freshman year, I'm trying to prove it, and I'm trying to earn it, and I'm trying to hold on to it, and I'm trying to keep it. Junior year, he says, it's yours. Listen, if the Lord were to call you into his office... A lot of you are expecting that he would say, not good enough. This needs to get better, and that needs to get better, and I'm not happy. And you just, you just flat out need to get better before I'll express any kind of affection to you. And that's not what the gospel offers. The gospel is he calls you into his office, and he says, yeah, you've blown it. Yeah, you're a sinner, and I love you. You are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter, and you are mine no matter what. That's what Paul's experienced. Have you experienced that? The forgiveness of your sins, the cleansing from your shame, 
the welcome of God that takes away your fear? Have you experienced this? Listen, everybody needs to experience this. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And every person will stand before God and give an account of his or her life. And everyone will spend eternity somewhere. Everyone needs Jesus. I was mindful of this just yesterday. We had our first funeral in this space for a 30-year-old young lady whose mom has attended our church at different points. Without getting into the details, it was an entirely avoidable death that came through a long series of bad choices. And we sat there with her two sons there and a lot of her friends. It was just gut-wrenching. We called it a celebration of life, but it just felt sad. And, and, and everyone's trying to process it, like you do. And they're trying to, why did this happen? And how did this happen? And, and, and as, I, as I listened to people who spoke, who all just, I mean, what courage they displayed in getting up to speak and doing their best to try to process it. But, but, but they, they had no answers. And I don't even know that that's their own fault. I don't know that they know any better, but they have no answers. And the only hope that maybe was there was this idea that everyone just goes to heaven when they die. And so if you die, well, at some point you'll just end up in a happier place. No one had thought it through much deeper than that. And I just want to tell you today, that's not true. you will be welcomed into the arms of the Father. Anyone from any background, any lifestyle, any history of sin, anyone will be welcomed, but only through Jesus. Jesus is the one who took our sin and shame on himself, on the cross, paid that on our behalf to bring us to God. And so all are welcome into the family, but only through Jesus. And when that happens, then you experience the love and the acceptance and the forgiveness and the cleansing and all of that. And that's what the Apostle Paul has experienced. And that's what many of you have experienced. And here's what I want to say. If you've experienced that, isn't it true that you want everyone you know to experience that? You don't want to just sit on your hands and go, well, I'm glad I'm saved. No, no, you want the world to know. You want to impact the world with that Gospel message. Well, so did the Apostle Paul. And so this whole section that began in 127 and ends at the end of chapter 2, the whole thing is under this banner of Paul wants to impact the world for the gospel. Let me show you this. We read this in verse 27. I want to hear that you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If that happens, he says, verse 28, this will be a clear sign to them. In other words, the people of the world will know who Christ is. Christ is the one who, it says in the beginning of chapter 2, has humbled himself. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't hold on to that right and that privilege, but he let it go and he became a servant and he emptied himself and he poured out his life. Why? Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul wants to make an impact that allows people all over the place, everywhere, every tongue, every tribe, every nation to say Jesus is Lord. 
And he enlists the Philippians in this effort. He says, here's what I want you to do. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. I want you to shine as lights in the world. That's the impact he's trying to make. So, so Paul is, is just saying, that's what I want. I want people to be impacted. I want the good news to go forward. He's even said in this letter, I don't even care who it goes through. I don't care if it comes through uh, people with good motives or people with bad motives. I just want to see the gospel go forward. I want to see people meet Jesus. This is why, I, you know, I, I meet church planters a lot in this area. This is a, like, prime time area to plant a church because it's fast growing, a lot of new people. And so when people show up to town to help start a new church, they often say, hey, why don't you go talk to the folks at Redemption? So I try to take them to lunch or buy them coffee and sit down. And, and you know what? I don't sit there and go, oh, man, this, this pastor is really sharp. He's, he's really good. He's going to cut our market share. <laughs> Do you know, you know why I don't think that? Because you know what our market share is? It's a drop in the ocean. Drove around with some of our staff through Queen Creek and out past Johnson Ranch and through Santan Valley, this whole Southeast Valley. Do you know how many stinking houses are getting built? And you know what's the first thing built in every community? One of those steeples with no cross at the top. And there are people in every house, men and women, boys and girls, some retired, some working hard, forming a career, and all of them need Jesus. So more church plants, yes. More big mega churches, yes. We need all of it because we want people to meet and know and love Jesus. Amen? That's the mission we're part of. That's the impact in the world that Paul wants us to make. So now the question is, what's, what do we have to do? What's on our end that makes this impact possible? And here he starts to get a little more specific. Here's what he tells us. He says, here's what impacts our impact. Our obedience impacts our impact. Our obedience impacts our impact. Nietzsche said this, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. If you can't say amen, you should say ouch. I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. See, the truth is there's a lot of people who don't have any interest in Jesus and it's not because he couldn't really help them and really meet their needs and really make a difference. But it's because they look at the church and they go, those people aren't any different than me. They're just as mean. They're just as angry. They're just as selfish. They're just as consumeristic. They're just as sexually addicted. <laughs> what do they have to offer? Now, the reality is I think if, if people got close to a real living gospel community, I think they'd go, no, there is something different. But we know this, our obedience impacts our impact. Notice how important this is to the apostle Paul throughout this section. In verse 27 of chapter one, again, here's how he began. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Let your obedience, let your citizenship, let your loyalty be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He highlights the obedience of Jesus as an example for us in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Here's what he says in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. He says, Philippians, listen, you guys have been so great. You've obeyed. You love the Lord. God has given you his grace, and you love him, and you want to follow him. You've always had this track record of obeying. Here's what he says. So now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Like, you did it when I was with you. Here's what I want. While I'm not with you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we hear that and we think, whoa, 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 wait, didn't he just, didn't, didn't that preacher up there, didn't he just say that we can't work our way to God? Yeah, I did. Whoa, what about that where it said, work out your own salvation? Get this, it doesn't say work for your salvation, it says work out. Work it out, what does that mean? Well, look at the sentence. If you ever just are confused about what the Bible says, just slow down and reread it. Look at what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What's he talking about? He's saying just keep obeying. And here's the good news, verse 13. God's the one working in you. God's the one empowering you. God's the one who's given you his spirit. But obedience impacts our impact. I was talking to a young woman uh, this week who kind of one of her side jobs is she uh, does makeup. She does makeup for weddings or you know, photo shoots or just different stuff. People will hire her, just really good makeup artist. And, and she said, what's interesting is when people are thinking about hiring you, they're always looking at your makeup because they're thinking, do I kind of want to look like that? And if they like your style, then they go, oh, maybe I do want to do that. If they don't like your style, they do something else. Listen, church, people are looking at us, and they're going, well, I want to be like that. Could I see myself living that kind of a life? Now, you hear that, and it feels like it just ratchets up the pressure, and it does, and it should. But a lot of us mistakenly think, oh, well, then I need to be perfect, or at least I need to act perfect. And you know what? That's the main thing that the church, that the people outside the church see in the church that they don't like, is people acting perfect. People aren't looking for perfection. They're looking for you to be real with them, to be honest with them, which means when you blow it, you admit that you blew it. You humble yourself. You confess it to them. You say you're sorry. You ask for forgiveness. And listen, when you do this, when you admit that you blew it, it will not be new information for them. This is why one of the best things you can do as a parent is apologize to your kids when you screw up. Because they're not wondering if you screwed up. They know you did. They're wondering, does he know? Listen, when you admit your weakness, when you admit your sin, when you admit your mistake, it's not new information. So be honest. So be real. Say, listen, I'm not perfect. I need the grace of Jesus, but here's how I try to follow him. In faith, our obedience impacts our impact. Now, here's what's really interesting. When you hear me say, and you hear Paul say, that we need to be obedient, what what are you thinking we're saying? 
Like, what are the, what's the list of things that pops in your head? Obedience looks like blank. The things that it means we're supposed to do or the things it means we're supposed to stop doing. What, what do you think of? Like, what's your, if, if, I, if someone just came to you and said, hey, you want to impact the world? Your obedience impacts your impact. Obey. What are you thinking we're talking about? See, my guess is most of us, we have a kind of a list. It's uh, obedience looks like sexual purity. Looks like honoring God with your thoughts and with your body and with your internet. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of obedience. Maybe you think, oh, obedience, that, that has to do with my money. I need to stop spending money I don't have. I need to start giving. I need to start being generous. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of obedience, obey. Maybe you think, you know what? I I just get so angry with my kids and I lash out at them and I need to stop that. I need to. Maybe that's what you think of with obedience. See, whatever you think of when you think of obedience, if that's the only thing you think of, you'll miss what Paul is going to emphasize in this passage. And it's a small thing. See, Paul's going to say, if you want to impact the world through your obedience, here's an area to focus on that every one of us needs and most of us never think about. And it's in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So, We want to impact the world with the gospel. Our obedience impacts our impact, and we obey when we stop grumbling and disputing and embrace the mind of Christ. Did you read verse 14? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You're like, "Ah, doesn't it say do most things? Do something? No, 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 no. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Well, what's that? Well, grumbling... The, the Greek word literally means an utterance made in a low tone of voice. It's behind the scenes talk. It's the meeting after the meeting. It's the under your breath. Gosh, can you believe what she said? Man, you're really getting the raw end of this deal. How could they let that happen? Ugh. Boy, I can't believe it. I deserve better than this. It's grumbling, low, behind the scenes, under your breath, griping. Do all things, he says, without grumbling or disputing. Disputing just means arguing, giving voice to these disputes and arguments and frustrations with other people. Now get this, this is really key. It's fine to lament. Lament is an authorized form of complaint throughout the Bible. Bunch, bunches of psalms are laments. There's a place in Jeremiah where God actually seems to get mad at people because they don't complain to him. But here's the thing. A lament is when you have a complaint and you take it to God. And you're direct and you're honest and you say, God, how long? God, why'd you let this happen? God, I don't like this, right? That's lament. Grumbling is, how could God let this happen? What is he thinking? I expected it to be better. It's, it's, it's not having the courage to take your complaint to God 
But you just grumble, 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 grumble. Dispute, 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 complaint. Now, here's the thing. This drives us crazy when we see it in other people. Especially when we see it in our kids and our grandkids. Right? Like, I got an amen over there. I mean... (laughs) I remember being in Flagstaff last year with, with my family, and, and we go on this beautiful hike. We're going up the, you know, past where the observatory is and kind of on this hike, and it's just great. And we're pushing the little ones in the stroller, and they're too young to really complain, so we're just pushing them. But the, the two older ones are behind us, and all I hear is grumble, 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 grumble. I'm thirsty. This is hard. Why are you guys trying to kill us? Can we slow down? Can we take a break? I tried to put enough distance between us where I I just couldn't hear him anymore, but I just, it wasn't working. And eventually you're like, I don't want to get lost in the woods. So I got to, so I said, hey girls, uh, I don't know if you know this, but there's actually a Native American monument up here a little ways. You should come up and see it. What is it? It's a statue of Chief (laughs) Quitchergripen. It's really pretty. They go, Yeah, we don't see it. I said, I know you don't see it. (laughs) Right, you hear your kids complain. You see your friends complain. You hear your spouse gripe and grumble. and It's clear as day. But we don't see it in ourselves. What's the problem with this? What's the problem with grumbling and complaining? Well, for one thing, it's ungrateful. This is why we don't like it when our kids do it. Because we go, you got to be kidding me. Do you know how much I sacrifice for you? Do you know how much I love you? No, I'm not trying to kill you. I love you. I'm for you. I, I do. I spend huge amounts of my life thinking about what you need, not what I need. And when you grumble about it, you're ungrateful. And don't you think God's up there going like, guys, I literally could not give you more than my own son. Quit your griping. It also imagines that we know better than God, doesn't it? Well, God, I know how the world ought to work. I know how this really ought to run. I know what's better. This is, this is an affront to God. If you read the, the ultimate passage about murmuring and griping and grumbling and disputing, it's in Numbers 14, as the people of Israel have been rescued. They've been saved from death and slavery through the blood of the lamb, and they're being ushered to a promised land. And as they get there, they encounter some bumps along the way, and they start to grumble to God. And they start, actually, actually, they don't have the courage to grumble to God. They grumble to Moses, to the leaders, to the humans. And they go, we had it better in Egypt. You know what it says in Numbers 14, 11? God says this, how long will these people despise me? Because God hears all our grumbling and our disputing and says, you're really directing it at me. Dishonors him. And it's divisive. It creates splinters. It creates factions. Right when our grumbling and our murmuring is like, can you believe they did that? Can you believe they let her do that? You know, I, I, I really worked hard for this and, and I got turned down. And you really think he should be in that position? You know, I don't like what they said about this. And the music and the preaching used to be like this and the it used to be grumble, 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 grumble. It's divisive. And it's so subtle. 
and it impacts our impact. Listen now, James, the brother of Jesus, talks about this danger. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Boy, we know that all too well, don't we, here in Arizona? And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Can you believe she said this? Can you believe he did that? Out of the same mouth, blessing God, cursing those made in his image. This is all part of Paul's larger call for unity in the church. This is a lot of why he's writing this letter is to try to encourage the Philippian church to get along because their unity and their way they talk to each other impacts their gospel impact. He calls them to unity in chapter one, verse 27. He says, I want, you to, I want to see that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter two, verse two, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he holds up at the end of the chapter, Timothy and Epaphroditus, these brothers who did not look out for their own interests, but for the interest of others, who put the other needs above their own and therefore shined like a light in the world. And that's what Paul says will happen. Look at verse 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Listen, when it gets really dark, how about you, but there's, there's moments where it feels like our world's getting darker and darker. It doesn't take a lot of light to shine when it's really dark. And so when people see us and hear us and interact with us, what do they hear? They hear griping and complaining and grumbling and infighting. Do they hear praise and thanksgiving and gratitude and blessing? Admiral McRaven says to change the world, you make your bed. Paul says to shine like a light Replace your grumbling with gratitude. Let's pray. Father, as I have sat under your word in studying and even in preaching this sermon, I, I cannot walk away unscathed. I'm aware, Father, of the ways I grumble and argue the way I dismiss my sarcastic and biting comments. God, I'm aware of the warnings in James and Proverbs about those in leadership 
who speak a lot of words and therefore face a stricter judgment. And God, it's hard for me to believe that anyone in this room isn't cut by this word. So Father, would you allow us to see that wounds from you can be trusted? Would you use this cutting to push us to Jesus, the one who did not grumble and did not dispute, who lamented to be sure, but who ultimately said, thy will be done. And he humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death on a cross. God, lead us toward him. Help us find our life and our obedience and our joy in him. And would he be lifted up to the thousands and thousands of people who are coming to this community. We pray in Christ's name, amen.